Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So today we've got Brendan Cooley, and um, I wanted to have Brendan on because Brendan, you taught a class when you were a when you were a senior. I want to say, is that correct? And I was senior, yes. I was a sophomore at the time, and it was back in 2013, 2014, and the class was focused on the you know the conflict between China and the U.S. and how it would develop in the future, and uh, you know using game theory and things of that nature to kind of uh, to look at the problem. And I I find I. I thought that was really interesting because it became such a big topic later. And I really like to talk to people that are, um, that are right about things in the future. And, you know, they, they've, you know, I, I know you were right about that. Um, so I, I think that you, you got to earn some points for that. And so do you mind giving us a brief bio? Like, so you, what, what did you do after that class and um, uh, your interest in international relations and how you got there? Yeah. So that was, um, that was 2014, 2014, I, I guess. Um, Will very patiently sat through a class taught by an undergraduate, which was a learning experience on on all ends. Um, yeah, so I, I went on from there. I worked for a defense policy think tank for uh, for a year, um, kind of um, studying the like defense policy sides of the U.S.-China conflict and thinking about kind of strategic planning um, for military posture for for the United States in the in the Pacific, uh, and I went to grad school. Uh, spent five plus years, uh, just finished getting my PhD in, in politics at Princeton um, and wrote a dissertation about, um, a, a rather theoretical dis- dissertation about trade and war, but with um, uh, US-China conflict applications kind of sitting in the background the whole time. Yes. Um, and so, so I graduated in the fall and uh, ended up uh, punting on the <laughs> the international relations career and deciding that I was going to pursue my true passion of doing baseball analytics. So that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I love it. But we'll, we'll talk about international relations today and, uh, you know, I always love to, to have these conversations. That's awesome. So I wanted to get started. Uh, what is the Perry Expedition and, and what lessons can we learn from it in regards to trade and war? Uh, so, so the Perry Expedition... Um, was an encounter between the United States and Japan in the 1850s. Um, I don't know near, as nearly as much about it as I would like to. Um, the, the history actually seems fairly scant. So if any of your listeners have um, reading recommendations, I, I'd, I'd love to hear them. Um, but, uh, but the long story short is that um, Japan was, was basically fully autarkic at the time. It didn't trade with anybody in the outside world. Um, the United States wanted to change that um, and sent a small detachment of uh, warships. Um, this was like at the beginning of the era of, of steam um, gotcha. out, out to Japan to essentially demand that the government open to, to trade with the United States. Um, and so Japan sort of saw these uh, high-tech gunboats uh, sitting out on the harbor and uh, recognized that it had very little power to resist uh, American demands. Um, and so the um, the encounter ended with an agreement that Japan would 
um, began opening its markets to world trade and would provide various um, you know, services to the United States in terms of coaling stations and, and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I, I've paid some attention to th this um, historical tidbit because I think it's an interesting, um, it sheds light on a lot of the sort of political dynamics of, of trade right. that, aren't, that we don't pay attention to as much. Um, it, it, it's interestingly not a war, um, but war was certainly on the table. And if the United States did not get what it wanted, it was very clear that right. uh, that Commodore Perry had permission to um, to engage in hostilities with Japan. Um, but it shows that the, the the threat of war actually affected the trade relations of the United States and Japan and Japan with the rest of the world um, in the time thereafter. So Japan became more open to trade than it otherwise would have been due to coercive, the coercive threats of the United States. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is that the United States had no designs on Japan's territory and that the sort of like state, the stakes of the conflict were entirely about trade. So what the United States want, wanted to get from Japan was not some, some piece of land or didn't really want to extort um, like money or, or concessions or, 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 you know, what your, your typical kind of historical bounty um, out right. of Japan, it, it wanted to change its trade policy. Um, so in this sense, you see that, that both war affects trade, but also trade or trade policy can define the, the stakes of potential conflicts. Um, and so that's, that's like a kind of core just observation about the the history of of trade and war that I used to, to motivate a lot of my work. And, and, but you see this dynamic in a lot of other places. So um, I just think the Perry expeditions are sort of a particularly clear instance in which the the stakes of the conflict were clear, and we really see how how the threat of war changed um, trading relations between Japan and the rest of the world. That that's interesting. So instead of Millard Fillmore, Millard Fillmore, instead of wanting to go and conquer the island chain of japan it was we want to go and we want to sell our stuff to the japanese people and, and, and open buy up japanese a new market things. exactly and buy japanese things that's interesting right. so was this driven by by business interest or was it like is, is it clear what they were thinking or is that even even important at all just that the state actor wants to open up this uh kind of trading relationship yeah there's a really interesting um family of historians uh, called the Wisconsin School. And it, I think the, the core book is called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. Oh, yeah. Um, that basically tell, I think, I think that's right. It basically tells the entire, like the, the story of US foreign policy from before the, uh, um, the Civil War and th through the Cold War as a story of, um, of business interests essentially seeking market access abroad. Interesting. Um, and so, so I, I, I don't know this history as well as I'd like to, but there are lots of cases in which you see businesses lobbying for a lot of these foreign policy actions that the United States military undertook. Um, and so the, so the connection between the, um, the individuals and business interests that stood to benefit from the foreign policy and the foreign policy actions that were, that were undertaken are sort of very clear. That makes sense. So... <laughs> It seems to be, you know, kind of a commonly held belief that states that are more economically integrated are more peaceful. 
Um, and I remember I had a class at UNC, it was political science class, and it was on the European Union. And that was one of the core tenets. It's, it's, it was this idea, you know, everyone came together in Europe, and they wanted to build this community. And the idea was that you know, you've got this pyramid, and you've got free movement of people, free movement of goods, and, uh, you know, aligning regulation to make that possible. And if you bring that all together with less than the likelihood that states would would be in conflict with each other. Do you think that's true? Uh, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, I, I, th I don't think it's wrong. Um, I, I think economic intercourse is, is generally good for peace for a lot of the reasons that people posit. I mean, it's, it's costly to disrupt ties. I mean, you only need to look as far as, as Brexit to see that, um, you know, disrupting trading relations, whether it be through some, you know, pol domestic political shock or through some international war is, is not something that, that people like, you know, it's not, not a event that people like to, to go through. Right. Um, but I think the, the question that's left sort of unaddressed by that perspective is why do, why do states choose to integrate their economies in the first place? Um, and so like looking at the European Union, um, you know, up until the, up until World War II, the economies of Europe were, were fragmented by all sorts of, of different trade barriers. It was very difficult to move goods across, um, across international borders. And, you know, there were, there were, there were tariffs and quotas and, and everything. And, and countries fought about these all the time. Um, Interesting. And when the, the European community was founded, it was revolutionary in the sense that everyone sort of agreed to treat foreign goods the same way that they treated domestic goods. Got it. Um, and I think it's that, that orientation toward protectionism or the, the country's desire to integrate economically that is the thing that's causing peace rather than the trading relations themselves. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So it, it seems like we've had kind of this, this bull run of, uh, you know, opening more open trading relationships between countries. And it seems like everything's uh, quickly sliding backwards. Do, do you feel this is, it, it seems to be a real phenomenon. Um, do you see this continuing or reversing? What do you think? Yeah. And, and, it, and it bears out in the data um, that the trade has, is, the pace of trade expansion has contracted quite a bit in the past several years. Um, yeah. I, I, I hope it doesn't continue. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic. Um, I, I think the the West is is very much feeling the or the rapidity of the of economic integration has affected politic the the politics of the West sort of in a in a way that makes the what the governments in Europe and, and the United States and Japan more protectionist than they would otherwise be. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with um, with how quickly China has grown and how quickly it's disrupted global trading markets. And it's made it very difficult for people who were, um, who es essentially have, have felt the, the adverse effects of globalization to, um, to cope. Um, and right. I think that that's being um, being manifested in in the politic and the the 
political changes that you've seen in the last several years. I think that makes a lot of sense. I remember, uh, you know, taking an econ class, talking a lot about Carolina today, and and we were talking about free trade, and it was, uh, and, and one of the, you know, you know, the professor goes up there and he's like, well, you know, like, yes, there are trade offs, and that some people may lose their jobs, um, but they can just always go and retrain. But I think the truth is, is you know, we're generally asking the people that are uh, least able to retrain to retrain, and also, you know, if let's say you, if you're in working in West Virginia in a coal mine, you don't want, want to retrain to be a home health worker. You know, you know, it's much lower status position, et cetera. And it's, um, and then we see all these deaths of despair and all these other second order phenomenon. And it seems like, um, the trade-offs were, it it costs a lot more than we expected, so to speak. And it's like the hollowing out of of middle America. I, I, I give this example. If you're in Palo Alto, if you're in like Chapel Hill, things look like really awesome. Like the people, you know, they look healthy, like the buildings are really well taken care of, but you go out into Eastern North Carolina and like you go past these like abandoned you know, textile mills and things of that nature yep. and, and things like much, they look completely different. looks yep. like a completely different country. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about yeah, that? And, and that it's, and it's very fun. difficult. And because of the way that, um, because of how expensive the, the the cities that have sort of benefited from uh, from globalization have become, it's very difficult for people even to move, even right. if they wanted to. Um, point. The, 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 their ability to sort of move to opportunity is 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 compromised, and then and and there, there are immense economic like the, you know those are economic costs, but there are obviously social costs as well. In that, like these folks, families and communities are rooted in a particular place, and and to leave is something that that, that very few people want to do. Right. Um, and this is all sort of, I mean, all of this is, you know, we have fairly good evidence is connected to um, the intensification of trade ties with, with China in particular, but, but, but globalization in general. That's interesting. So knowing all that, you know, what is a, what's a policymaker to do, if that makes sense, especially in relation to, to trade with, let's say China has been the big example in the last four years. Um, you know, is it, escalating tariffs is it de-escalating tariffs is it trying to negotiate better deals you know what does that look like i don't know yeah there are lots of different dimensions of the problem i mean to to go back to the like economic dislocation question i think one of the biggest things you can do is is make it easier on people who are who are adversely affected by trade um you know i think our our transfer programs to help people who have been hurt by globalization right. are, are fairly insufficient um, and not uh, both insufficient and, and ineffective in terms of getting getting money, money in the hands of the people that yeah that, that that need it in order to to do the kind of retraining or or relocation or or even or just you know being being able to live in, in the place and the, in the job that they they currently occupy um, that, that's something that I think would help the internal politics of the Western countries quite a bit and right. would make them more resilient in the face of some of the, the external challenges. Um, but then you still have to, you have to deal with the sort of the flip side of the coin, which is that, you know, not, not only are you dealing with this, this internal um, economic and political dislocation, but, but you have this, this foreign policy or this, this, this foreign economic policy challenge in that. Right. Um, China has not um, 
has not fully reciprocated the market access that, that it's been been given by the West and still um, protects a lot of key sectors and um, and uses all sorts of regulations to keep Western competition out, um, right. which is bad for for U.S. for Western firms and for 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 workers alike. Um, and so, so that that's a whole nother can of worms. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't. I, I don't have. I don't have good solutions to the problem. Um, I. I think that. Basically, like I hear arguments on all sides of the the coin and see merit in all of them. Um, you know, I, I think since China's uh, ascension to the World Trade Organization in the early two thousands, um, yeah. the. Uh, you know the the amount of um, that that essentially, you know, the the West gave. The West was hoping that that China's political liberalization would follow its its economic liberalization. Um, they thought it was you know, and it's been it it's like. been almost twenty years, right? right. And <laughs> once you get to that that. Uh, uh, you know, purchasing power parity just flips over. You just automatically democracy. That that seems right. to be like the, the the that was the commonly held belief. It seems like, and and, and we're not there, right? Right. Um, we're, and we're not. And it doesn't seem like we're close. Yeah, it seems like we're getting farther away. In fact, you know, Xi is now president for life, and exactly. you know, I don't know. And so, you, I, th I think you look at that and you say, well, this this kind of this plan that that the West, you know, broadly defined had. For how to integrate China into the world economy, that that economic integration would precede political liberalization, seem to fail. Um, and if that's the case, then you know the the sort of core assumption of the strategy no longer holds. So I I think uh, some sort of rethinking is is merited. Um, the question is sort of, of of what what you do now, right? And and I think it's a hard question because despite all of the economic dislocation that that we were talking about before, there have been immense benefits to to both you know poor chinese who have right. been i mean just dramatically like lifted out of poverty and to to um consumers in in the west who can now purchase basically GTVs. any consumer good for, for un prices that were unbelievable 20 years ago right um which matters you know yeah. it's it, it's not it's not just cheap stuff i mean it, it it matters for people's for people's livelihoods and their ability to to kind of you know realize the life that they want um so i think they're just sort of costs and benefits abound and it's really difficult to think about how you how you reset the relationship when when it seems like regardless of the path that that you take it's there are sort of nasty consequences right the real trade-offs no matter wherever you yeah. look yeah that's interesting how how important do you think things like industrial policy like b having equipment building you know building things here is i, I want to give you the example so my sister works in at thermo fisher and she she works at um the only vaccine filling it may not be the vaccine filling but it's a central part of um vaccine production it's the only plant that does it in the u.s is in greenville north carolina like there's one plant you know and there's like okay. there's like a couple thousand people that work there but that is the only plant and everything else is in china 
like you know so the entire u.s there, there's now only one place that and it's because in eastern north carolina labor is relatively cheap compared to the rest of the country um you know is that something we should be worried about i i remember you know in a lot of philosophy classes like you know don't worry about that that's just like a very tail end risk kind of thing to worry about that but we see that with ppe too right we didn't have enough ppe we couldn't get it from anywhere and we couldn't produce it here it seems like a real problem i don't know yeah i i i think there are there are cases in which i mean it's it's easy to imagine being exploited by these sorts of trade dependencies and right um you know i'll, I'll recommend to listeners uh um Hirschman's uh book oh gee I mean, I'm gonna forget the title on the spot um but it, it's a classic uh, sort of study of um of how, of trade as a weapon essentially sort of how do you how do you use trade dependency in order to exploit um other countries and 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 sort of use that to your own benefit um and he sort of studies the example of of Germany and the interwar period sort of being able to to bully eastern europe by being such a um such an essential trading partner essentially um and so so yeah so i i can see these sorts of um dependencies being push points where you know you, you could imagine the country being exploited at the same time the united states is such an enormous and important market for so many things in the world that it also has these sorts of um you know pressure points on other countries and i think when when leaders sort of start to go down the road about thinking whether or not they want to use these weapons they they think twice and recognize that it's very easy for others to turn the you know to, to turn turn it around and exploit them the same way um so so that's not one of my my chief concerns um but i do th but I, I i worry more about it in the realm of sort of military technology and, and things right. like that and, and it does seem that like seem like policymakers have paid a fair deal of attention to that and um and are thinking about it and trying to to build resiliency in those areas interesting it, it does seem like they've been paying more attention to it i know was it last year they had a they had a harvard scientist they arrested and put in federal prison for you know, sharing secrets in wuhan actually with the you know a joint mm -hmm. appointment they're paying for his house or something and um it does seem like people are paying more attention to that so th that's a great segue to uh, in the coming conflict and current conflict with china i i see two dominant narratives one is uh China's so far ahead, there's nothing we can do. And China's so far behind, there's nothing we need to do. And neither seems to be really the case. Uh, what do you think the current state is? And how do you think it will develop? I know that's, that's a difficult question. In terms of sort of the, the US Chinese sort of international political influence or that, that's right. economic might or kind of well being. That's a good, so I guess uh, positional power is like a global hegemon, if that makes sense. Is it just going to be kind of a bipolar world for a while? Or I, I know Peter, is it Zihan? It just convinced that, you know, China's not really a real player to worry about. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, I don't have particular, particularly strong 
positions either way. But I think the, the, the fact is that the United States and China are going to become decoupled economically over the next decade or so. Um, I think if I, I would bet on the incoming administration or perhaps when folks are listening to this, it will be the, the current <laughs> administration. Um, we'll have a will be fairly successful in convincing the European Union and, and the UK and Japan to to um, to go along with the United States in terms of uh, in terms of this sort of decoupling or at least sort of dramatically scaling down the amount of interconnectedness with China. And I think that's going to push the Chinese to um, invest strongly in economic and political ties with with other countries. Um, and I, I think that that's gonna look um, in practice like um, more like traditional spheres of influence than we're used to seeing in the, the 20th century, that there will sort of be a, a China-centric trading block and a, a alternative Western-centric trading block. And there will be uh, supporting political military structures around around those those blocks um you know i don't think that's good for anybody right um but but i think that's that's probably where we're headed um i, I mean the, the united states has the advantage of this in, ter in terms of being the appealing partner to the majority of the the world's largest economies um Got it. but but that being said, this it, is not, it's not a uh, a good outcome for for either side. Right, that makes sense. So, is is it looks it look does it look like more Belt and Road kind of initiatives and development in Africa or that? Kind yeah, of thing? I mean, I, I like my senses were you know in some ways that a lot of the the investment in in Africa and and in Central Asia through through Belt and Road and stuff like that is sort of laying the foundations for this this kind of political realignment um, Southeast Asia is a very is already very well integrated with the Chinese economy and it'll be interesting to see um, where they turn the, there's a lot of division within um, within ASEAN the the Association of Southeast Asian um, countries um, about sort of how how closely they would like to be connected with China but the fact is that they're they're extremely dependent on, on China economically and it's hard to imagine them extricating themselves from that. Um, so, so I think, I think you, you know, in that sense, the, we're seeing a kind of like a resurgence of the non-aligned world and that's going to be who the, the West and China are sort of competing for influence over. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you work at a, worked at a defense think tank for a little bit so, and thought about uh, some of the issues in the Pacific and I just recently finished a book by uh, Christian Bros um, called The Kill Chain. And the central thesis was, you know, in the Pacific, the Chinese developed uh, anti-ship missiles that render our carriers fairly useless. Do you, I, have you read about this? Are you worried about this? Um, do you think it's a real threat? Yeah, I mean, the, so the group I, I, I worked with um, thought a lot about this before it was, was popular, but it does seem yeah. like the sort of... Um, the defense establishment now recognizes that that China is a sort of major technological threat and has been doing 
a lot in terms of really changing the way that um, that they think about um, invest like in, investment in new platforms and, and military strategy. Um, yeah, I mean the, the the long and the short is that it, missiles are are very cheap to right, that seems procure. To be the real problem. Um, they're they're increasingly accurate um, and able to to seek targets over the horizon and um, and and revector as targets move. So an aircraft carrier is 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 not safe. Um, and you know, in the sort of what they call the cost exchange ratio of these sorts of engagements is very unfavorable for the, right. the United States perspective in that you're you're you want to defend that carrier, you're thinking about sending a lot of many, many interceptors at these sorts of missiles, most of which will miss and you, you, that, that's your best hope of sort of defending your your position. So um, so I, I, I think from a purely defense policy perspective, the Pentagon recognizes this and has been um, has been changing the way that they they think about um, procuring new new stuff in order to um, in order to deal with it. Um, but it does mean that that it's much harder for the United States to to pose a sort of or to be credible when it says it's going to defend Taiwan or right. defend Japan um, or or sort of or counter Chinese influence in in Southeast Asia when the the big expensive powerful platform that it sends to to demonstrate that power is something that's actually very vulnerable. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, at least people are now thinking about the problem, right? That that seems to be the first step right. to creating a kind of solution, right? Is to understand right. that it is a real issue. Um, I was wondering, could you, this is a bit of a shift, but could you steel man liberal international relations theory and then perhaps realism? I think they're kind of important concepts. Yeah, and and I think really important for thinking about the, the US and China um, going forward. Um, so these are sort of, um, canonical international relations paradigms or, or theories. Um, and so liberalism uh, essentially is built around the premise that what's what's most important in international relations is what countries want or, or what governments want um, and seeks to essentially explain variation in the, the tenor of, of countries' relations with one another, sort of are they allies or foes, or do they fight wars? Do they trade? What have you? Um, with respect, but by looking at um, differences in their interests. So, um, so if you want to explain why the the U.S. and Europe get along and trade a lot with each other, the you root your explanation in the domestic political institutions of those uh, countries or organizations. Um, or their the, the economic interests in those countries, these sorts of things. Um, and so realism is the more uh, classical uh, theory of international relations, which thinks that states' interests are basically fixed. That um, governments either want to survive to see the next day, or they <laughs> or alternatively want to dominate the world, um, depending on which brand of realism you ascribe to. Um, but the, the, the sort of paradigm starts in the assumption that that states all want the same thing, 
Um, and in this sort of zero sum, very conflictual world, what matters is is power. And power determines who gets what and, and who survives and who's able to impose their will on others. Um, you know, so I, I think what's unfortunate about these paradigms in some sense is they're both obviously true. Um, <laughs> in that what what countries want matters in determining right. what, what they do and and what country how powerful countries are also matters in determining whether they're able to achieve those ends. Um, and as a discipline, international relations has not been nearly as successful in sort of taking those insights and integrating them into uh, coherent, better, more formal theories as they are at arguing about whether liberalism or realism is, is better in some way. That's right. It almost seems like, you know, it's like you you need your power to be able to, to um, exercise what you want in the world, right? Like, exactly. I, I so, so why do you yes. think it, international relations has not been successful so far at, at kind of collating that? Is it just like kind of factional academic politics or something that prevents innovation from happening? Or yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, the incentives are bad because for a long time, people were able to uh, publish papers and get tenure by picking fights with other people and oh, interesting. That, and, and writing, you know, screeds in the, 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 the discipline's journals about why one person's theory oh, is, is wrong and my theory is right. And you, know, you just go back and forth right. forever. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I believe that like scientific progress in the, the discipline like really rests on being able to take those ideas and, and formalize them mathematically and then subject right. them to sort of, um, you know, rigorous empirical tests. Um, and for a very long time, the discipline seemed reluctant to do that. In the 90s, it, 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 to its credit, the field started to take a turn. Um, and I, I think things have been much better since then. Um, but that being said, there's still an awful lot of kind of squabbling and infighting along these lines and, and less, um, less kind of like less teamwork in terms of like dedication towards building a, like a theoretical apparatus that we can all agree on and all use and all kind gotcha. of push the ball forward together. Um, and so in that sense, I still think that the discipline is kind of trapped in a um, still almost pre-scientific kind of world, um, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes I, uh, analogize this to the, to um, actually the, the field of international trade, which like, I mean, really dates itself back to like, to Ricardo and right. you know, like, you know, writing about um, cloth and wine and and comparative advantage and like very conceptual type things and you know and, and like it advances in trade were just kind of were words and they were the like ways to to think about um, the like you know competing visions about like how the world works and right. Um, you know, like Marx was in on that debate and it was like people exchanging, you know, just perspectives, right? But then eventually the the field got to a point where they were able to sort of write down a model of how they thought trade worked. Um, and and that was the sort of 
um, that was the beginning of of trade economics as a science. Gotcha. Um, and in the sort of 90s and 2000s, they finally got to the point where they were able to take those theories and really marry them with data. Um, and once they were able to do that, they 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 have this sort of um, this core that everybody sort of ascribes to, like this is what trade theory is, and this is what empirical work in trade economics looks like. Um, and there and the discipline is extremely cumulative because of that. Um, international relations is very, very, very far from that, um, which I think is is unfortunate. But but that's why you know we keep having these conversations and keep thinking about these things and right um, you know trying to move the ball forward. That's right. I, I love that because I, I was reading uh, a couple of your papers and, you know, there's like, um, there's a lot of notation in, and you've also focused a lot on game theory, which I think is really interesting, like providing real kind of theoretical and, and kind of like creating a model you can look at and, and everyone is subjective and everyone can look at it and poke at it instead of just like kind of uh, talking around the subject. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't, and you know, it, it's not right. 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 <laughs> I mean, right. it's 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 a it's a representation exactly. of the world that has an enormous amount of assumptions, like some of which are stated explicitly, but like most of which are just kind of like, you know, the fact that we <laughs> think either. we can represent how humans like right. inter, like how billions of humans interact across right. like you know thousands of miles of space um, with like a few equations is is insane. But but if like but as humans we're not going to be capable of doing anything more than that in our our p brains so it seems like you know if you want to build something that that lasts and that is communicable to others and, and something that's that's going to be um that, that other people can build on in the future it sort of has to be expressed in this common language that that everybody can pick up and understand um so so that that you know i it's not a particularly satisfying, um, right. you know, like outlook, I, I guess. But um, but I think it's the way you kind of like it's it, it's the way you have to to go for go forward in in science. Definitely, you have to have some kind of foundation to you know get right. everybody on board, and then and then you can build up from that. But without that, right. just talking in circles, I guess. That's, yes, that's really interesting. Uh, so my next question, it, it kind of. Uh, it goes along these lines a bit. It's, it's what does the layperson kind of most misunderstand about trade and war? And then conversely, what do the experts most misunderstand? Yeah. So I, and the experts is a bit broad. So it's lay people, yeah. but you know, like, yeah. Um, well, what do you, I mean, what do you think lay people think about trade and war? What's the, what's the, what's the consensus now? So I think that's a great question. Just just on the trade policy side, and this is kind of like, I don't know, this is kind of an answer I think most people would say if you've taken like a college econ class and just got out of it, would be that, you know, uh, people understand it can be positive some, um, but trade and war, that, that's a good question. They may understand it uh, slightly better than policymakers now. I, I think people had like an intuitive sense that uh, these two things are connected, like on, on the ground, if that makes sense. Like soybean farmers in the U.S. understand that this is like very much a, um, you know, like this is, it's very closely related to power and policy and, and war all the time, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I think the experts have come a long way. Um, I think for a very long time, um, economists and maybe to a lesser extent political scientists just sort of screamed into the void that free trade is good and <laughs> you, you all people need to just get on board the train. Get on the board. Um, and, and we've definitely, we're definitely no longer there, um, which is good. So, you know, I think, I think experts have a very good understanding of the sort of domestic distributional consequences of, of trade now. Um, I think they've, they've done less about understanding the sort of international distribute distributive consequences of trade and sort Got of what it. that means for countries' international relations. Um, that being said, there's, there's the, within the last couple of years, there's been a lot of really great work in this area and in political science and, and economics. So I, I think we're getting there, but I think it's, it's harder because it really relies on, on understanding the, how the distributional consequences of trade sort of work domestically first and 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 then understanding how those get channeled into politics and and then how domestic politics really affects affects international politics um so but i think i think you know experts are are getting better at that but i think you're right that that like you know the the body politic for lack of a, a better word has really for a long time recognized that that trade is is not just this like or international trade is not just this sort of diffuse exchange kind of thing that um you know that that that's positive sum or whatever right i mean like i think they recognize that um that 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 it's an intensely political thing um and there's some really interesting research that shows that sort of like uh that Congress people from um, whose uh, whose districts have been adversely affected by um, by trade with China actually adopt more hawkish foreign policy oh, positions towards China as well. Um, and so I don't think that necessarily like vindicates uh, like lay people per se, right. but I mean it suggests that there's something in a sort of like macro like information aggregation kind of sense that's happening where like certain individuals are recognizing that that their welfare is affected by by decisions being made abroad um because otherwise it's hard to explain how that connection would or how you know how that that um that observation would set it sort of manifest definitely yeah it's a tough problem it's a yeah yeah Exactly. It's tough to get your kind of arms around because it's so complex. Right. Um, so the, the next part, I wanted to kind of throw out a couple of terms and just I want to know um, whether you think they're overrated, underrated. It's kind of this very interesting kind of a exercise. I got it from Tyler Cowen from Marginal Revolution. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so I'll just throw out a few terms and maybe if you give you know, a sentence or two, just, you know, why you think it's overrated or underrated or correctly rated. Um, sure. And I, and, and I think what people, I was thinking about this recently. I, uh, do you ever listen to conversations with Tyler? Absolutely. Uh, so I feel like people uh, should, you know, if you believe the efficient market hypothesis, you should in general uh, say things are correctly rated, right? But, <laughs> you know, like uh, the vast majority of the time, unless you're just trying to like throw out a hot take or something. But anyway, I yeah. just, I think it's interesting. Um, so overrated or underrated, uh, Hobbes. Um, 
I'll say underrated. Um, I I think that like a lot of people probably read Leviathan at some point. Yeah. In in their sort of you know philosophy or political science or whatever, yeah. but probably more in philosophy than political science now. Um, and I think it's kind of treated as like a cute kind of like oh you know like state of nature yeah yeah or like or like it's treated as like oh well this is how things were back before we had like enlightened government or whatever and i it's i think it's important to like remind ourselves that like 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 the anarchy that hobbes describes is kind of fundamental to all politics that 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 we're that we're never really that far from from that kind of world i mean like you imagine if you just snapped your fingers and the and police in the United States went away, sort of what would happen, right? And right. and that world conditions politics in so many different ways, and I think we forget that, right? right. Um, so underrated, long-winded, but underrated. That's great. That's great. Uh, Malthus, overrated, underrated. Oh boy, um, I'm not sure. So, uh, I mean. Like, do, do you have like you have Malthusianism in mind? Yeah, sure. Um, like the concept that you know, like uh, for his time, you know, like we've got more people, you have more children, you just like there's less food, and then things yeah slowly devolve. I like a model of the world. Like I almost feel like the uh, the Communist Party in China views the world extremely right. zero sum or negative, you know, and. Right. Um, so I and, and that's a I think that may that's always helped me kind of model their actions a little bit. Um, I don't know. I'll say overrated in the sense that I still hear you hear a lot in sort of um, discourse around climate change about how um, you know people ought to have fewer children because of their impact on the environment, which right. I think is a it's very common, a very, very wrong-headed common. idea. Um, and so in in, the, in that sense, Malthusianism is still is still with us and. Um, and, and overrated in the sense that people still seem to be giving it more, more credence than it deserves. Yes, uh, antinatalism is strong throughout the society now, it seems That's like. right. That's yeah. uh, so what about uh, Cleo Dynamics, kind of Peter Turchin, trying to kind of, it, it's, it's, it's similar to what you're talking about, you know, formal proofs, trying to model history with data and create a kind of a better process. Yeah, so I, I don't know a ton about the field. My, my sense is that it's sort of, adjacent to to history it is it, so he, he, you know i just finished an atlantic article on peter turch and he, he worked on this very specific type of type of beetle and then he moved to history and he's like wow we, huh. we've got to add, bring mathematics to history to try and create like a more rigorous process and maybe we can find these general trends and i, I uh-huh. don't know so i imagine historians are not particularly friendly towards they're very upset there were quite a few upset yeah. <laughs> uh yeah historians in the in the article let me tell you yeah and i'll um so for that i'll say underrated um yeah i mean i i, I think it's um historians natural bent seems to be sort of that that every case is is unique and you can't that the generalization is is bad um and uh, you know, I'll just I'll just cheerlead for for the political scientist in me and say that no generalization is good, and and we ought to study these long term trends and try to um, try to theorize them in a cohesive way. That's great. That's great. So let's see. Um, I had a few more questions here. So these are these are a little bit under uh, unrelated, but I 
it's these these are some questions I found just reading your work. Um, so how di- you know how difficult is it to build cohesive societies when you have a lot of ethnic heterogeneity? And and are there any easy workarounds to try to build community with people? You know, we see this in Rwanda now with you know um, Kagame has been you know well some say dictator, some say he's done a really good job with kind of bringing the country together after the the crisis um, in the nineties yeah. and the genocide. But yeah, I, so I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I've done a little bit of um, work on uh, sort of ethnicity and trade. Um, I think it's hard to say because um because a lot of the ethnic heterogeneity that that we observe or or we sort of we see we, we see in the world it is itself a function of politics. Gotcha. Um, I mean, just to like take an example close to home, like you know, we don't we no longer recognize a sort of salient political distinction between Irish Americans and Italian Americans. Right, they all belong um, together now. Right, but fifty years ago we. You know, much according the Italian vote was a thing, right? right? right. And similarly with the Columbus Irish Day, vote, right? Columbus Day was that was an it, effort to go with the Italian exactly, vote. exactly. Um, and so I think, I mean, I think if you look at society, like if you look at societies that we consider to be ethnically fragmented, I mean, some people claim the United States is, is ethnically fragmented. Um, you know, a lot of that is um, is itself a function of of divisive politics. Um, and so, you know, so, 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 I mean, one of the hurdles in building integrated societies is, is to have politics that are more inclusive and, and treat people as, as individuals and not members of, of some ethnic group. Um, I mean, the, you know, the classic, ex- like the, to take the Rwanda example, right. I mean, the, the sort of the, the distinction between Hutus and Tutsis is, it, <laughs> Hutus and Tutsis is is something that most people recognize to be sort of not based in anything, right? I mean, it's right. it's an it's a it's a fabrication, right? Um, so, so in that sense, you know, ethnic heterogeneity is is it's, is a is sort of down the the causal chain from political dysfunction. Um, so, in that, that sense, sense, if you you could if you fix the political the politics first, then perhaps you have less ethnic fragmentation and um and more cohesive societies societies that way um but i mean at the same time i think like you know the fact that people believe these ethnic differences to be salient means that they they matter um i mean in the united states we recognize uh distinctions between people based on ethnicity people claim to be of of different groups and that clearly matters um, politically, um, and so, so you know, to that, like recognizing that that's a fact. I think you also want to build political institutions that are are as broadly representative across those lines as as you can be. And I think when we look at places that that are ethnically fragmented, we often see that one group um, claims disproportionate political power. Um, and uses that to sort of entrench those those ethnic lines and to claim more sort of government spoils for for themselves. Um, so so I think it's a it's a tight line to draw in that like when you know when you when you try to engage in that sort of nation building 
project, or sorry, when you try to engage in that kind of, um, you know, spreading representation across across ethnic groups, you're you're implicitly recognizing the the importance of those ethnic groups, which right, you know, which, you know, which I which I don't think is particularly good, um, but at the same time, like, you know. If you recognize empirically that clearly they, they matter, I, I, I think you have to do something to to address that. So, um, so I don't have any any easy suggestions, but that, that's sort of how I how I think about the the issue. That so that reminds me, would you have any tips for let's say a policymaker that it, it seems like America's gotten much less good at building countries, rebuilding countries? So if you look at Japan and Germany, the World War II crazy success stories and then if you look at iraq and afghanistan not so much you know have we just gotten let has the u.s federal government just gotten worse at doing things in general and this is just like a byproduct of that or uh i mean if, if i if i was gonna play occam yeah um, i would say the, so the soviet union went away oh, um, interesting. I mean, I think a large part of the United States' ability to um, to shape West Germany and and Japan and other countries yeah. and South Korea, Taiwan, lots of other places, the Philippines, maybe to a less extent, um, you know, to to exert influence over them and to to shape the trajectories of their governments and their economies was due to the fact that it had a credible threat to sort of throw them to the Soviets, um, which they which they which they didn't want. Right, right, right. Um, and you know, no such thing really exists in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, uh, you know, there there are, there are lots of other nice, issues in the, those places that makes it hard to um, to encourage sort of development of of stable political institutions and and functioning economies. Right. But um, but I think that's that that's one of the big reasons why. The United States was so successful in the past, and maybe less so now. That that's wow. That's that's really really interesting to me. We we talked on the the podcast a lot about how, um, and I haven't phrased it like this before, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you need kind of an existential threat to solve some of these collective action problems. Like some yeah, people do, and, and if it doesn't exist, like, and uh, one of our previous guests was bemoaning the fact that COVID was not enough of an existential crisis to uh, cause us to get off our rear ends. You know, we had the Moderna vaccine. It was ready in March, but we had to wait for, you know, a year because of Guillain-Barre with, you know, what was it? The swine flu in the eighties, you know, one in a hundred thousand people got Guillain-Barre and now the public health establishment is afraid if we put out the vaccine too early, you know, how many deaths are we willing to balance on this, you know, scale just because we won't get the it's vaccine. In. But, you know, that's yep. just one example, right? You know, there's multiple right. you know, failures at all levels. Um, but it does seem like that is important having some existential threat, which is, it's troubling to me because I would like to be able to solve these things without having some existential threat. Um, but, Perhaps that's just not possible. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, so maybe this is a silver lining of the China conversation that, you know, a lot of places that were sort of, you know, coasting in the the sort of U.S.-led post-Cold War, right? Um, you know, global era, now will face a face a choice and and may have to make some reforms that they were previously unwilling to, to undertake. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe you get good, 
good outcomes out of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think one of the like it's one of the one of the reasons that China didn't um, didn't didn't politically liberalize the way that that the United States and others had hoped was was in part because the the rest of the world didn't have enough enough leverage over it. I mean, it, China before ascension of the WTO looked a lot like um, a lot like the autocracies in in South Korea and Taiwan did in the in the in the fifties and sixties. Um, and you know those governments were sort of forced to to politically and economically liberalize over time as a condition of you know retain the protection of the United States. Um, and the U.S. has no similar ability to to coerce the PRC. I mean, nothing even close, right? Interesting. So you just can't. So. Fo- and, and it does seem weird because it was almost taken as fact by a ton of really smart people. It seems like just going back and reading that, you know, like democracy, twenty fifteen, China, it's happening, or you know. It, yep. it's just gonna it's gonna happen uh but it just that has not been the case at all yep interesting um i had one more question if you have some time it, yeah absolutely it's slightly unrelated um but i've been thinking about it for a while are are hot shooting wars between uh big powers just unthinkable now because of um the weapons we have or they're so destructive is it all going to be like what happened in the Donbass? in ukraine where it's like you know that you have the special forces going at night and little green men are running around and causing mayhem i so i'm not sure um i so all i know is they're not unthinkable in the sense that the united states government spends an awful lot of time thinking about hot non-nuclear war with china a ton of time and and i know that the, the um you know, the People's Liberation Army spends an equal, if more, uh, more time thinking about a hot shooting non-nuclear war with the United right. States. Um, and then none of these, n- none of these wars involve, um, you know, little green men or information right. ops or things that are plausibly deniable. They, they involve <laughs> ballistic missiles being fired out across the Pacific Ocean, oh, right? God. Right. Um, so in that sense, it's not unthinkable. Um, it, like the question is, I, you know, I think the real question is sort of how much of a, how much of a deterrent are, is the sort of specter of, of world annihil- annihilation and, and nuclear war? Um, I, I mean, I, I hope it's, it's quite large, um, but it's not hard to sort of write down models in which countries that recognize that uh, they are taking risks of world annihilation, nevertheless choose to escalate and find themselves shooting nuclear weapons at each other. I mean, Thomas Schelling was writing about this in in the 60s and his work stands sort of, um, you know, like unchallenged today, right? Um, So, so in that sense, it's, it's, perfectly thinkable um can you talk about shelling a little bit before you continue i, so, I think it might I, be interesting to the audience yeah i mean I, so i think i mean the core like one of the core insights that came out of his work is that sort of um 
you know, rational, um, forward-thinking, calculating states that recognize the cost of nuclear war might nevertheless um, take actions that run a positive risk of nuclear war or, or at the end of the day might end up actually pushing the button. Um, and so it's a, uh, you know, this sort of a theory of, of, of brinkmanship and sort of, um, you know, at the end of the day concludes that, that nuclear war is not something that is the, the sole province of, um, you know, psychos like Kim Jong-un, if you think he's a psycho, but I mean, his actions are actually probably not inconsistent with a perfectly rational right, right. individual. Um, and, and, and I mean, I think recognizing that is sort of, is fundamental if you want to build institutions and, um, and norms that contribute to, to world peace. Um, because the problem then becomes not simply convincing people that nuclear war is very expensive and very bad and, and sort of trying to get decision makers to overcome cognitive biases or whatever, you actually have to solve the problem that like rational forward thinking leaders might still find themselves in a situation where they want to use nuclear weapons and have to design institutions that, um, that make them less likely to do so. Um, so, so it's not a particularly, it's, you know, it's not a particularly uh, sunny outlook on the, right. the situation, but I think it's, it's really important um, for anybody that wants to think about how to sort of encourage peace between the United States and China going forward uh, to understand. It definitely is. And it, I, am, I am reminded just thinking about this, that, you know, states do have some ability to coordinate weapon use. And so in World War II, chemical weapons were not used and, and like That's they're right. able, there's some ability. I don't know. It, it's just, it's weird for me to think about that just because the concept of war being like somewhat legalistic in the sense that states that even even when they're opposing each other they can kind of coordinate on like okay these are the rules of the game if that makes sense which is very yeah. odd to think about in such a a, a bad um yeah and, and 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 it's it's hard to you know it's hard to like rem remember that when we were very we were willing to use nuclear weapons in, in right. i mean obviously part of that was that the united states had a monopoly at the time but um but yeah, so I, you know, I mean, I guess you can cross your fingers and hope that the that we we have a taboo on nuclear weapons going forward. It's quite possible that we do, um, but uh, but taboos get broken, right? Um, exactly. And so I wouldn't want to hang my hat on on that taboo sticking. Definitely, that's quite worrisome. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for coming on. Is there any other reading materials uh, we should send people to? Just your website. I can put some links in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, check out. I, I mean, feel free to go to my website and pull my papers up, but you know, go straight to the bibliography and and find some of the the great history books that that I put in there. Um, I can send you the uh, the tragedy of American diplomacy link and maybe some of the awesome. other books that that I mentioned, and we can post those up. That'd be great. All right. Any parting shots? No, this is great. Thanks for having me, Will. Absolutely. It was great chatting with you. Thanks. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. 
and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.